designers and curious minds. Ever wondered about the stories hiding within your building's walls? I'm Carrie Seaburn, structural engineer and host of Unstruct, the podcast that decodes and simplifies major concepts of structural design. Behind the math and physics, structural engineering simply predicts building behavior. Join me as we simplify the complex, making structural design accessible to everyone. Nowadays, instead of measuring it via cost, we're saying, well, what about carbon, you know? We've got two levers now that we can, if if an architect has an inefficient design, we can hit them with two levers if you like. (laughs) The official casualty figure is 55,000. Everybody I talked to told me that the actual figure is at least three times as much. And I believe that. I mean, seeing what I saw, Turkish codes are good and, and they have been improving, but compliance was completely lacking. Fluent in steel, concrete, masonry, and timber design, I'll bring you leading engineers to dissect the tales behind their building structure. Whether you're an architect, contractor, engineer, or just love a good story, this podcast is for you. Yeah, beam penetrations. That's a fun topic on this project. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Unstruct. From within your walls, hear the story behind how your building stands today. Hello, hello. Welcome to Tangible Remnants. I'm Nikita Reed, and this is my show where I explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. I'm excited that you're here, so let's get into it. Happy holidays, everyone. I know there are a number of holidays happening around the world this month, so I hope everyone has had or is having a great holiday season. We are four days from the solstice here in Maryland, and I personally am looking forward to the days getting longer. This year has been a little less traumatic than 2020, but still wild. And even this week, we lost a great in the world. Bell Hooks was a Black woman who was an author, professor, feminist and social activist, and hugely important in the lives of so many people around the country and the world for that matter. I've been resting and recovering since conference season and just with deadlines and end of the year, everything. So thanks for your patience. As the time between me posting the episodes got a little bit extended, um, I am going to be working hopefully with an editor and getting some additional help in 2022 so that I can be posting podcasts a little bit more regularly. There are a number of podcasts that I still have and need to release, which I'm super excited about. And so those are still forthcoming. So I'll keep the excitement going to get these out into the world. This week's episode features a conversation I had with Catherine Williams a couple months ago, and the timing is super serendipitous, particularly because Catherine Williams, along with Kathy Dixon, Kathy Prigmore, and Melissa Daniel, recently won the Whitney M. Young Award from the American Institute of Architects. Uh, and so for those of you who don't know, Whitney M. Young was the executive director of the National Urban League, and in 1968, the AIA president invited Whitney Young to come and speak at the AIA convention in Portland, Oregon. There's an 11-page PDF of Whitney M. Young's 
full speech that he gave to the AIA in 1968. And I have a link to it in the show notes. I highly recommend it. It's such a good look at what was happening then and the parallels of what are happening now. It feels like his speech is still incredibly relevant to everything that is going on in the world today, even down to how much money the country is spending on warfare versus peacekeeping. When he was delivering his speech to the American Institute of Architects, he was quoted as saying, as a profession, you are not a profession that has distinguished itself by your social and civic contributions to the cause of civil rights. And I am sure this has not come to you as a shock. You are most distinguished by your thunderous silence and your complete irrelevance. I love how candid he was to a room full of white architects to be like, y'all aren't doing enough and you are becoming increasingly irrelevant. So anyways, um, the AIA now has an award in Whitney M. Young's honor. And the award distinguishes an architect or architectural organization that embodies social responsibility and actively addresses a relevant issue, such as affordable housing, inclusiveness, or universal access. So if nothing else, the AIA is keeping his legacy and his impact on the AIA alive through this award and, and through various other exhibitions and conversations that they're having about this. And so this year's winner was Riding the Vortex, and the key collaborators include Catherine Prigmore, Kathy Dixon, Catherine Williams, Melissa Daniel, as well as Barbara Laurie, who was a critical member until her passing in 2013. The Vortex has helped increase the number of African-American women architects, which from 2007 to 2020 has risen from 175 to more than 500. So for more than a decade, Riding the Vortex has been a collaboration of African-American women representing the entire spectrum of practice, and it's worked to increase the number of people of color licensed to practice architecture in the United States. It launched in 2007 at the AIA Conference of Architecture in San Antonio, and it directly responds to Whitney M. Young's observations on the disheartening history of American architecture. And so I'm super excited to be able to share this conversation with Catherine Williams because she is a gem. She and I met when I moved back to the DC area and we've traveled together, gone to conferences together, and just really enjoy connecting whenever we get together. So let me get into her bio so you have a better sense of why she's amazing. Catherine Williams is a licensed architect in Northern Virginia and currently a senior project manager for construction at a DC university. Her career path includes work in traditional architecture firms, community development, and managing commercial construction for a general contractor. She restarted the Black Women in Architecture Brunch in D.C., which is an annual event, and co-founded the Desiree Cooper ARE Scholarship, as well as being a founding panelist for Riding the Vortex. She's written about architecture and development and served as editor for multiple publications. She's also served as the chair of the AIA Housing and Community Development Knowledge Community Advisory Group and currently serves on the AIA Continuing Education Committee. She is a board member of the Village of Love and Resistance and is working to build a cooperative community in East Baltimore. Catherine was an Enterprise Rose Architectural Fellow in San Francisco. In 2013, she received the National Organization of Minority Architects President's Award, and she received the 2016 AIA Virginia Emerging Professionals Award. Catherine also writes and publishes articles on her own website, catherinerw.com, 
and is a publisher editor for Art Stories and the, the Black Women in Architecture Network. So I'll put a bunch of links to all of these things in the show notes, and I hope that you will check them out. This week's building spotlight is Cedar Hill in the Anacostia neighborhood of Washington, D.C. And you can check out some photos of the site as well as follow the podcast at Tangible Remnants on Instagram. I'll also put links to the building in the show notes so you can get more information. Cedar Hill was the home of Frederick Douglass in Washington, D.C. And I grew up in Northern Virginia. I learned about Frederick Douglass in school, but I didn't learn that his house was on the National Register and right in D.C. and I could have gone to visit it. And so I think connecting the built environment to history, particularly for students, and allowing them to be able to physically stand in the same spot that the person that they're studying stood in 50 or 100 years before is super cool. And I wish that's something that I would have been able to experience more as a high school student. So Cedar Hill is the Frederick Douglass National Historic Site. And one of the quotes that was on the NPS website for Cedar Hill is that, Historic buildings rarely survive generations by accident. Someone made a choice, or in the case of the Douglas home, a whole lot of women made a whole lot of choices over decades. And I love this quote, obviously, considering the podcast is called Tangible Remnants. And this building is a tangible remnant of Frederick Douglass's life and legacy and is a space for people in the present to interact with the past. So if you're in the D.C. area, I highly recommend going to check it out. It's a gem of a building. This week's episode is sponsored by Smart Chief Architects. Smart Chief Architects is a course that I created to help architects better manage their small practices. And you can find out more information at www.smartsheetforarchitects.com. And if you enter in offer code TR podcast, as in tangible remnants podcast, then you can get 20% off any purchase on any of the courses. And without further ado, let's get into the show. So thanks for joining the podcast. I'm very excited that you're here. You're um, and so I would love to talk to you about your architecture journey, because I know when I moved to the DC area, I was incredibly excited to connect with the Black Women in Architecture Network that you started and all that. And so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about your journey and how you got into creating Black Women in Architecture. Wait, and how long have you been in D.C.? Uh, since 2012, I came back to D.C. So like I'm originally from okay. Northern Virginia, but I came yeah, back yeah, yeah. in 2012. Yeah. Okay. All right. Gotcha. Yeah. I got into architecture as a kid because I went to a career fair as a Girl Scout and met a woman who was an architect whose name I have no idea is because I was eight or nine years old at the time. And right. yeah, <laughs> um, have no pictures, have no nothing. So I don't know who that was, but yeah, <laughs> eons ago that happened. And my mom at the time um, was very much uh, very active as far as like kind of fostering the interest of myself and my brother. So she started looking for architecture camps and programs for me to be in. So I started, I did some Girl Scout camps. They had this program where I got to travel for two weeks in South Carolina in Charleston and Savannah, uh, Savannah, Georgia, going to Clemson and going to an engineering firm down there um, and basically learning about architecture, design, engineering during that time with like, I think it was like 30 other girls or whatever like that. But yeah, we spent two weeks down there. 
I did the Explorer program. People don't know it's a Boy Scout program. It's a career exploration program. Um, a lot of people do it through like police and fire. But in Richmond, we had an architecture firm that had started uh, an Explorer program for architects. So in high school, I went, I don't know, like eight to 10 weeks, like one night a week. And you would go to the firm and they you know, taught us about architecture. They It was one of the first places I always tell people, that's how I learned like about the degree programs. You know, like there, there are multiple architecture types of degrees. And so like when it really helped me, like when I was looking at colleges, mm-hmm. they let us play with the computers and do CAD, you know, a couple nights. Um, so it was a really overall just intro to architecture for high school students. So it was a great program. So basically I did all these programs and a lot of them weren't just architecture, but had, you know, design components. So I learned about other types of design. And so when I was looking at college, I decided to do architecture because um, after I learned about like getting licensed and all that kind of stuff, I realized that if I ever wanted to be an architect, um, I had to have a certain degree and I had to be licensed. But if I didn't go to architecture school, I went to a a different degree program. I don't have to come back. And so at the time, like I was going to school with like no money and basically trying to figure out how I was going to pay for it. And I was like, well, I don't have time to like go somewhere else and then have to go back to school later or have the money to do that. So um, I pursued the five-year degree and went to Howard and did their architecture program and it was great because uh, I was in DC and I grew up in a suburban town or suburbs of Richmond. So great to like be in a city and get to see, you know, all of the vibrancy of a city. At the time, it was the late 90s, early 2000s. So DC still had a lot of disrepair from like the 68 unrest and just disinvestment of cities. So at the same time, we were seeing some renovation. We're also seeing a lot of buildings. And as an architect, I always was like, well, you know, what's happening with these buildings? Like, why is it, you know, something happening with these buildings? So I think I became interested in architecture, but I also became in like how cities work and how projects actually get built and completed and even just started, right? How do you start a project? So after college, I came back to the Richmond area and I got my first job basically through networking. I called up AIA and said, hey, I'm a college graduate. I just finished. I'm trying to get a job. I had I had interns when I was in school. So I had a little bit of work experience before I graduated. But I, you know, that was in DC, not in Richmond. So I didn't have those Richmond connections. And the AIA connected me with an architect who had a friend who he had graduated from school with that was going from school proprietor firm to actually having staff. So he hired me and another recent graduate and a graphic designer, and we were his initial staff. Uh, so I got in working in Petersburg, Virginia, which I guess like it ties into your theme of, of, of renovation because we were doing a lot of historic preservation work in Petersburg and throughout sort of kind of like Southern Virginia. That was really sort of our territory. So I did a big plantation house in Surrey, Virginia and worked with uh, some of the historic parks and Civil War uh, sites down in the Petersburg kind of Dinwiddie Southern, Southern area down there. Mm-hmm. And I stayed there for a couple of years and realized I needed or I wanted to go to a larger firm. Like this was, we were a firm of probably six people at my year, like two and a half or so. And I really wanted to go to a larger firm a little bit because I'd been there at HJK. But, I, you know, at that time I was an intern in college and I didn't, I was like doing model making and very small tasks, not really in depth in the project. So right. I went to a larger firm. I did mostly uh, municipal work. So I did a lot of schools and courthouses and I did that for two years. Kind of thinking back to more my time in 
in DC and at Howard, I really was one of the things being in Petersburg because I got a small firm. I got to do a lot of stuff. So, mm-hmm. you know, I was working with the graphic designer, drawing maps. I was going out doing measurement measurements of buildings. Um, I was talking to community members about sites that they had and wanted to get, you know, some architectural drawings for whether it was like a vision uh, kind of drawing schematic of, of things that they wanted to see. And so they could use those to advocate. But I, I felt a little frustrated because it was like, well, yeah, we're the architect, but we weren't making projects happen. Right. Uh, so I really, uh, at that time, about five years in, started looking at development as uh, as a way to sort of be the person who initiated the project. So I went and got a fellowship, Enterprise Rose Fellowship, and that actually took me to San Francisco. So I ended up going to San Francisco and working for two nonprofit developers out there and did all kinds of community stuff. I mean, one of my first weeks there, when I actually was like the architect, the, the, I shouldn't say the architect, I was like the voice of the architect, you know, design, talking to people about architecture at a community meetings was like one of the most exciting things for me because, you know, I could actually like help people who were like, hey, we see this problem in our community, how can we change it? And as the person with the architectural experience, I could say, okay, well, here are the things that you can do. You know, here's what the zoning says. Here's what the city code says. Here's what makes sense financially. So that the financial part was the big part that I was missing. Uh, so working for a developer actually got me exposure to like how to make the financial part, at least start thinking about it, right? You can't always make it work because sometimes the numbers just don't work or sometimes you can't get the funding, but to start thinking about how to make that work and how, how to present that to community members so that they could understand like these are all the pieces that go into place. And, and if you want to see something happen, whether it's changing a building or whether it's that vacant site that's been sitting there, you know, because someone demolished a building and it's just dirt, here are all the things that you need to think about and how to make that happen. Yeah. And I think the first time that I met you was actually when you were giving the presentation from like the recap of your Rose Fellowship at one of the Black Women in Architecture events, or maybe the one that, <laughs> that Melissa had put together. Oh, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and I was I like, this is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Full circle. Love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's why I asked when you came to DC because I was like, well, I didn't come back to DC to 2014. So, yep. <laughs> So I was in California for six years and kind of as the product of the, um, towards the end of that time, or about halfway through, I started construction on a affordable housing. It was a condo building um, that we were selling at below market rate. And then it had um, city restrictions on as far as like how people could, you know, sell afterwards as far as making a profit. And that's how it remained affordable, had commercial on the bottom. So that product I was working on for about the last um, of the six that I was there. And as that project was going on and we were finishing selling the units and the commercial had finished, I came back to Virginia for family. My mom was terminally ill. And even though my daughter like really hates for me to be like, why did you come back to Virginia? I could have stayed in California. <laughs> right. I really wanted to be with my mom during that time. Um, right. And um, so I came back in June and she passed away in October. Sorry and then... Yeah. So for about, I was 2012. So for about a year or so between taking care of her and then taking care of all of her estate after that, I wasn't really working. I was doing a little bit of consulting. Um, The the first firm actually that I worked for uh, in Petersburg, I did work for them for a little while. And then I was doing some consulting work for some affordable housing 
organizations in the Richmond area. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was very, very small work. I, I always tell people that being in California was actually a blessing because California had a family leave policy. So when I had to leave, I actually had money that I could tap into and didn't have to work for um, all that time. And so, yeah, so it definitely was like a big stress relief because between my savings and that, those funds and some, the money that my mom had and being in my grandmother's house, which was paid for, you know, right. all of that went into me not having to worry about money at okay. that time. So yeah, definitely was a big load off of my shoulders. Mm-hmm. So about a year and a half later, I started looking around for jobs and trying to figure out what I was going to do. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to go back into affordable housing development, but because I hadn't been in Richmond for a while, I just didn't have the community connections. I feel was probably the biggest hindrance. I had connections as far as like networking people that were at organizations, but just like being embedded in the community, I didn't have that connection because I hadn't been there. And at the time in 2013, 2014, a lot of affordable housing was still not going um, forward. It was still coming off of like the financial crisis of 08, 09, 2010. You know, people were still just like, apprehensive about like hiring in that market and actually having projects that were going to move forward. And Richmond isn't a big market for affordable housing development. Um, there are very few developers there and um, they were still apprehensive about getting products to move forward. Mm-hmm. So I started looking around and trying to figure out what I was going to do and started looking at construction because reading the job descriptions is very similar to what I was already doing. And, you know, I knew how to read drawings, which was a plus because a lot of people that go into construction come from like a business side or, you know, some other, some other profession and they don't know how to read drawings. So that was a plus when I started talking to people and then I managed to get a position in the Northern Virginia area. So that's kind of how I came back to Northern Virginia, DC. What was it like when you made the transition from being more on the architecture side to being more on the contractor side? And had you already gotten your license at that point? Yeah. So I actually got my license when I was a fellow. Um, I had finished my internship hours. So before I went to California, I was done with IDP or now AXP. Mm -hmm. So I didn't have that to worry about. I just had to do the exams, which I had actually started before I went to California. Um, But because I moved across the country, I was starting this new position. And I basically took a break. I did like one exam, had passed one exam. I basically took a break for like a year Mm -hmm. and then picked back up. Uh, like a year later when I was in California. Okay. And so then you were already licensed when you made the transition from architecture Mm -hmm. side to the contractor side. Yeah. Um, And I know that you're still on that side. How, how, what are some of the differences that you're noticing from, or is there really a difference between the two different sides? Oh, there's a difference. There's definitely a difference. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) My, my, like, like two years after I was there, I did a presentation, uh, like the 10 things that contractors would tell architects. Um, because yeah, there is a difference. And I think as architects, we, we think like our drawings are the end all be all. And when contractors look at it and they're like, oh, if it doesn't say this exact thing, then mm-hmm. either I'm not pricing it or I'm assuming some pricing and it may be or may not be what you want. So I think architects really behooves architects to talk to contractors about how they read the drawings and what they see versus what the architecture architect thinks they see, because it's not always the same. In the construction company that I was working for, we were a small company and we had a few carpenters that were superintendents. But other than that, we didn't have any trades on staff. So we were always putting our drawings out and having trades uh, price the drawings or bid the drawings. 
So, you know, we had to really make sure, just like just like as an architect when you're bidding, you want to make sure all the contractors see the same thing. On the contractor side, we had to make sure that all the subs were bidding the same thing. And so that when we got back, you know, three sub bids for the millwork, everyone had, you know, five cabinets and, you know, right. the right. wind three windowsills or whatever like that. It all matched. Otherwise, we're like scrambling, like, oh, you missed this, you missed that. Or they're like, oh, it wasn't on the drawings or it wasn't this. And so like having good drawings is really important. The cost of things, like architects don't always know the cost of things. Even now, like I get asked like, oh, what do you think that's going to be? And I was like, it's too much. Like there's too many factors. And especially now with construction because yeah. of like all of the COVID stuff and stuff being stuck in containers and, you know, in the ocean somewhere <laughs> that you might not get until next year. You know, prices right now are wild. So mm-hmm. you can't just be like, oh yeah, that's going to cost $50. And like, it'll cost $50 a day, but like a month from now, it might be $75. So right. Um, it's not that easy to say price this and, you know, think that a contractor can just be like, write a number and it's that easy. We always like to talk to our subcontractors when we were doing that because uh, on when I was when I was working on general contractor, like they were the ones who were buying the stuff and working with it every day. And they knew like as prices were going up, prices coming down, you know, oh, oh, this carpet that you want, they don't have this one in stock, but they have this other thing over here. Is that okay to substitute? All that kind of stuff goes on behind the scenes. Yeah. And that's super important because I know that that's something that um, is often a misperception, but I, I am very cautious to be able or to make sure that I am deferring to the general contractors and our subs, because it's like at the price that I give is going to be wrong. Just <laughs> I just know off the jump, it's going to be the wrong price. I need to talk to yeah. someone who is much closer to buying it and yeah. all that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like why I like, um, so right. So now I'm actually on the, on the owner side and I'm going to, um, you know, sort of owner's rep managing construction, but I really like when we bring our contractors in early in the process mm-hmm. so that they can be talking with the architects and reviewing the schematic design set and reviewing the design development set before we get to construction documents. And then they, you know, you don't want them to get to construction documents and be like, Oh, well, this thing that you thought could be built this way doesn't actually work and you know or or this thing that you thought was available isn't actually available because it is in a you know a crate and somewhere or some part has to come from china and we're not getting that for six months so is there a substitute that you want (laughs) you know um you don't want to get the construction and have that happen so you know having having the contractor in as early as possible so that they can be reviewing things is really important right so then um sorry i forgot that you had transitioned to the owner side so then i love that you have the viewpoint from both architect, the con- the construction, and the owner side. Being on the owner side, are there things that you wish that either the contractor or the architect knew? <laughs> that the, like you know, ten things or something like that that the owners wish. Oh my gosh! So I'm in a because I'm at a university and mm-hmm. we have such a large system. Like just how onerous it is to get paperwork. Actually, within my university, we're actually like transitioning leadership over like the last six months to the present. So because of that, like processes are changing so like you know whereas one day you know i could be like okay this little change order is fine i can sign off on that the next day it's like well actually no like it has to be signed by three different people and so that takes time so when i first got there there wasn't uh like we have to have like when you have to do sprinkler right you have to have an outage um you know if we're in a dorm or if we're in a in a classroom building and we need to turn off the sprinklers to add a new head or whatever like that you have to get an outage right to submit a request for that like, and, and when I first got there, contractors would be like, oh yeah, we need an outage tomorrow. And I'd be like, what? And then I'd have to like scramble 
And mm-hmm. so finally, like our facilities department was like, we need two weeks notice. And so now at the beginning of every project, I have to tell every contractor, like, we need two weeks notice from outage. If you know you have to do sprinkler work or you know you have to do fire alarm work or whatever else that requires someone to come and turn something off, that's going to affect not just your space, but other spaces, like put that in the schedule and tell me about it ahead of time. And don't be like, surprise, we need sprinklers turned off because it's not going to happen. And I've had to tell them because they're like, oh, yeah, can we just get the sprinklers off? I'm like, no, it's not going to happen. Right. So it's like it's like, operation. Maybe I was like, if they're nice and like it's not going to affect anybody, I might be able to do it in a week. But I was like, two weeks is the standard. So mm-hmm. you know, things like that where you know, there people aren't necessarily thinking ahead in the schedule. I mean, we do actually ask for like two or three week lookouts, but when they're putting the schedule together at the beginning of the project, if they don't think about those things, then it becomes really difficult and can affect the schedule. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So it's the knowing the operations and what, how those will be impacted by the construction. Right. Okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. (laughs) That makes a lot of sense. (laughs) Also knowing, like also knowing who's in your building, right. Who is affected by the work you're doing in your building. So if you're doing, if we're doing a lab in a building, knowing that there's like five other labs that are connected to the same mechanical system. And so if you're doing work, it's going to affect those five other labs, which means that you might not be able to do that work until at night because you can't shut the system down. Good tips. (laughs) So the way that we connected was through Black Women Architecture. And so I guess there were, at, at the time, there were two different Black Women Architecture things happening. So there was the the events that Melissa Daniels was running through AIA Northern Virginia, I think. And then I know you also then started and founded the Black Women in Architecture, sorry, the Black Women in Architecture brunch. So talk a little bit about how that yeah. Yeah, so Melissa was doing the WIA. She was actually running the, the WIA, the Women in Architecture series and i don't know how she got tagged to that but basically she had been running their like lecture series for a couple of years and so she asked me to come do the lecture series so i think that's how we first connected the black men architecture brunch started because i read an article on what used to be the 32 percent website and now is equity by design and it was by this black woman designer who was here in DC. And I read the article and like saw got to the bottom and saw that she was in DC and was like, I don't know this person. And I don't I don't say that like being like cocky, but because I've done like national stuff for NOMA, the National Organization of Minority Architects, and also AIA. And I was in the SF NOMA chapter, which is pretty large. Um, and I've attended a lot of NOMA conferences. Since I was the magazine editor for NOMA, I've attended a lot of conferences. I had met a lot of Black women architect architecture and there's so few of us so it's it's not hard to like know like all 2000 of us or at least like by face right (laughs) right right. so when I read this article I was like who's this woman I don't know her (laughs) so I emailed her and we ended up having lunch and um so we were talking and she was talking about the fact that she was she was working but she was also interested in possibly starting her own firm and so I was like oh well do you know Kathy Dixon and do you know this other person who has a firm and she's like no I don't know them and I was like how are you in DC you don't know these people (laughs) So I was like, I need to figure out a way to get people together. And so so we started chatting and I was like, okay, well, let's do this brunch. Let's let's do an event. And we started, we said, let's do a brunch because, you know, like brunch in DC is a thing. Um, I don't know if it's a thing other places, but it's a thing in DC. So I had a list probably of about 20. Yeah, I think I had a list of about 20 Black women architects in DC that I knew. And so I sent a sort of like just a request like, hey, I'm thinking about doing this idea. Are you interested? And like overwhelmingly people were like, yes. Yes. I remember. So, being, yes. <laughs> so then I had to figure out how to do it. Luckily. Okay. So two. So a couple of things that were sort of like lucky. First of all, I, I, Kathy Dixon is an architect. She owns a firm in the DC area. 
And initially I went to her, was like, hey, you teach at at UDC. I thought about doing it at Howard since you know I'm a Howard grad and I knew people at Howard. And I was like, okay, I can do it at Howard. They have a conference room and stuff. But that I don't know why that didn't work out. And then we went to Kathy and we're gonna have it at UDC. And we were really close to having it there, maybe until like a month before the event. And then it was like, oh yeah, you can't have alcohol on the premises. And I was like, well, we can't have brunch without alcohol. Right. Like, what are you talking about? Exactly. <laughs> alcohol is a Muslims thing. are like inspired. <laughs> Even if there are people who don't drink, like we'll get them sparkling, but there's going to be a majority of people who want mimosas. Like, exactly. this is brunch. So we had to scramble and Catherine Prigmore worked for studios at the time. And so she ended up letting us use the conference room at studios. So we ended up going from like a group of 20 people to, I think we squeezed 40 people in that freaking conference room and it yep. was like so hot. And <laughs> But people were like so happy to like get together and like see people that like, you know, because a lot of us know each other or know of each other. Mm-hmm. Some of us might get together on like, you know, twos and threes or whatever like that. But to see a whole group of like almost 40 women in the same room, Black women who were all in the architecture realm was pretty amazing. and. I had a my colleague from Richmond. Um, she was actually an interior designer, but in her like career number three or four, she actually came to California when I was there and got her certificate as a sommelier. So I called her and was like, "Hey, I want to do this event. Can you help me out?" So she actually came up from Richmond and she had a caterer, and they came and she did the wine and he brought the food and that's how we started. Yeah, it was it was like all like. I don't know, shoestrings. And I'm trying to think. I guess we did charge. Yeah, I guess we charged. But basically, like, we charged whatever the food cost or whatever like that. So, like, like, the goal wasn't to make money. The goal was just, like, pay for the people to have food and get together. And she did a wine tasting. That's what it was. She did a wine tasting for the first one. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Because we were like, oh, we need some kind of programming. And so Mm -hmm. she did. She did a wine tasting. And everybody loved it and yeah yeah it was a good time jumped off from there jumped off from there yeah it did and i love it <laughs> remind me what number this year is going to be uh 2021 is number seven i believe okay because we did one and then people were like when are you gonna do the next one i was like mm-hmm. uh i don't know <laughs> so i think we actually i think that was like i don't remember if that was the fall of the spring maybe that was the spring i don't remember so we did one and then I think I did one like six months later. And then I was like, yeah, I can't do that again. So we like, like waited a year. Yeah. yeah we, I waited a year. And so now we've been doing them annually and just changing up and still like finding people who, you know, offer off space. Like we had it at Gensler. We've had it at the Octagon um, because Architects Foundation has used that space. We had it at what is it, WDG, where Melissa works while. So yeah. So yeah, it's like figuring it all out. And after I think the second one, I realized like I couldn't do it by myself. So I started getting a committee. I was on the committee for one year and I was like, it is a lot of work. I am very (laughs) impressed that Catherine was able to put this together by herself. Oh my gosh. More than one time in a row. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Basically, so I've become an event planner. uh, (laughs) um, Yeah. I'm still trying to figure out, like, I I think I want to hand it off, but I also like, it's kind of like my baby. So I don't mm-hmm. want to just like let it go kind of thing. Right. But I do realize like I need to figure out like how to transition a little bit. So like, even if I'm like on the committee, but like have someone else chair it or. Right. Like right. <laughs> and like, I love the the community that you built with that. And the I'll put some links to the Black Women Architecture Network in the show notes. I also know that you're helping and supporting students on Facebook through writing the Vortex as students are going through and getting their testings done or 
you know, passing tests, not passing tests, and just the inspiration that you are providing in that community. So talk a little bit about that as well. Yeah, so that started, the, the, well, so, okay, the Facebook was kind of a second or third iteration of this group that we started as an email thread. So when I was getting licensed in, I started, I guess, around 2006 is when I started taking my exams. Um, I think in 2007, a small group of us met at an AIA conference and we were all like, oh yeah, you know, a bunch, uh, I think it was maybe six or seven of us. And we're like, we're all going to be licensed and we're going to work on this and we're going to meet up again next year and, you know be licensed. Yeah, that didn't happen. But okay, anyway, so we started emailing each other, though, like we were all in the email thread. And we, so we started emailing each other. And, you know, it just became like a, a community that we would support each other that way. And Brian Hudson and I were kind of one, more of the vocal ones. And in addition to the emails, we would text each other, like when we were getting ready to take exams. And so we kind of became each other's support system through that process. And the email group, well, I didn't really grow, but we, I, one of the things I started was I started talking to people who were licensed because I was like, hey, like, tell me your licensure story. And so I would send those out to the email group. And around 2000, I forget what year, but so the, the Facebook group came about because another NOMA member, Angela King, we started talking and I was like, oh yeah, we used to have this email group. And I was like, you know, some of us are already licensed. So like, we, you know, we didn't really need it anymore. And so she kind of like, uh, started the Facebook group and Brian and I kind of started chiming in and we started getting all the people who we knew who, who were in NOMA, who weren't licensed to be a part of it. I guess when Brian was was president, he was trying to figure out like who wasn't licensed and how what was a way to like track those people and to help them and to support them and figure out like what NOMA could do um, to help them and how could we find out who was in the process. So that was a way to do that. So yeah, I do. The Facebook group is there. I kind of post stuff, but I'm not. I'm not as active as I used to be on it because I try to like let people who are more in the trenches and actually right. doing exams because they're the ones who know what's going on. I'm like three versions behind on exams, so like, I have no useful information concerning that anymore. I did take the stories that I had collected and started um, posting those on a website. So that's arcstories.com. So I started collecting those probably like 2008 or so mm -hmm. and like I said it was just something that I started doing and last year I really made the effort to try to post once a month so that's kind of what I've been doing is encouraging people to write their stories and really because I think it goes to the mantra of like you know who's going to tell our story and I really try to get people to focus on just the time period of taking your exam. Like it doesn't have to be their whole life story. It doesn't have to be, you know, like, oh, I'm doing this because blah, 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 blah. Right. My goal, future right. goal is blah, 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 blah. But really like, what was your experience? Because I think a lot of people think like they're the only ones who like have anxiety or they're the only ones who failed exam like five times and they're not, right? right. So having a story one helps record the experience, but also has been a really, good way of like having this body of like everyone has a unique experience one but also don't think that because it's hard for you it hasn't been hard for someone else i think there's only maybe one person on there on the i think i have 30 stories now posted i think there's only one person maybe two who went through the whole exam process and didn't fail wow so wow. yeah <laughs> that would not be me i definitely <laughs> failed at least Wasn't three me either, so. <laughs> 
wasn't me either, right? Even though I really tried because like I was in one of those transition processes mm-hmm. uh, or transition times of, of in carb changing the exam. And so I was really trying to finish, but I failed something and had to like take something in the next version. So yeah, yep. it wasn't me either. But when I read that, and I didn't even know like this person that that had happened to them until I got their story and I read it and I I called him up and I was like, wait a minute, you never failed an exam? Like how come I don't know that? <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting. And it's, it's, always been, it's also interesting to read people's story and so let, most of the time I let them write it there are a couple people who either because of time or whatever like that or you know their apprehension about writing I interviewed and wrote this thing and then let them edit and um, sort of revise as they saw fit but most of the time it's, it's in people's own voices um, so you know they all come across very differently and that's awesome well I'll definitely put a link to that in the show notes as well well this has been great are there any other things that you want to cover before we jump off. And as I'm saying that, I actually realized in the background of all of this, or maybe not even the background, um, but yeah. you're also you're also a mom and you're also raising a baby who's now an adult. Well, she's not a baby anymore. Sure, she's yeah, she, she, she always ridicules me. She's like, mom, you never talk about the fact that you're a mom. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> right. It's yeah, like, it's I should ask you explicitly <laughs> since I know her and she would be like, how dare you? <laughs> Yeah, she's actually 20 now. And even though she's not an architect, has no aspirations to be an architect, she knows a lot about architecture and has been with me through most of my journey. And I always say that's one of the things that my first job, like there were so many things that I didn't know about that if I had thought to ask for, I probably wouldn't have gotten. But like one of the things was that I had a very family friendly office and my boss had his son hanging out in the office and his his wife, who's now his ex-wife, but was like the admin person at the office. So it wasn't ever a problem. Like if I had to go to a doctor's appointment or if I had to leave for take care of something and then come back and work on something later in the evening or take work home. And so because I had that sort of as my first job experience, that was sort of like set my expectation for every job experience. So it was never a thing for me to ask for those things going forward because he made that very clear in our firm that, you know, work was important, but taking care of your family, whether it was kids or parents, those were important and and not to be just discounted because like you had to get something done for work. But, you know, if you had to make time for that stuff and that that part of your life was just as important as what you're doing as work. Yeah, that's great. Well, good. I'm glad that we at least touched on that. So I'm sure there'll be plenty of students and recent grads listening to this, you know, ask for what you need. <laughs> Definitely. You know, also, if you get into a job and you realize it's not there, like, don't be afraid either to ask or don't be afraid to go out and look for right. those kind of things. Like even in my construction, um, the, the job that I had when I first moved back to DC, the construction firm was the same way where I had a boss who, you know, made family important. And when I had to I had to deal with things with my daughter. Like that wasn't, that wasn't a discount, right? It wasn't like, oh, Catherine can't get her job done because Mm -hmm. she has to go take care of this. It was like, well, you know, the deadline. So figure out how, you know, if you need to go do something else, figure out how, you know, you can get, make the deadline happen. Or if, or also if you need help, right? If you're like, Hey, I have this deadline. I can't get it done. Is there someone that can help me? um, Because I have to go do this thing for my family. Any places online that you would want people to find you to connect? The easiest one is my personal website, which is katherinerw.com. And I just redid that last year. So it looks all snazzy and nice. nice. And I try to have links to stuff there, even though like some of that stuff isn't, it's coming. Um, <laughs> but it's mostly there. Um, or you can search for me online. I, you know, people can always connect with me um, through Facebook or LinkedIn. Um, 
if you do LinkedIn, I always say, send me an introduction because then I know like why you want to connect with me versus just like sending me a link. And I'm like, who's this person? Right, um, exactly. It's very helpful um, to have a, have a little brief introduction. Um, so, yeah. And then I think I also just want to make sure that I mention like the, the writing vortex group. I think that group helps because there were, I think there were many things in my career that sort of like helped me feel empowered. Um, whether it was, like I said, the first firm, um, I, I wrote an essay um, that was a peer-reviewed essay to Boston, the Boston Society of Architects in 2004. Um, that was part of a book. And that's kind of how I got on the writing and publishing path was because that essay was published. And then because of that, I got to go be in a conference. So I got experience like sitting on a panel in a conference because of that. And then when I had the opportunity to be writing the Vortex, um, I came in as like sort of the youngest member of the group. Um, and so between like Kathy Prigmore and Barbara Laurie and Kathy Dixon, I was just supported in, you know, everything that I was doing. Definitely say, you know, find find your network and find the people who are going to support you in your career and also in your personal, in your personal life um, so that you can get the things done that you want to get done. Yeah, that's awesome. And remind me where the name Riding the Vortex came from. I don't, I think Catherine Prigmore created the name because uh, talking about the careers of Black women architects and like how much is swirling around us and how much we have to deal with in our careers. The initial panel came out of Barbara Laurie working, uh, trying to get tenure mm. and needing things like get, to get published and to be on at a conference and, you know, be a speaker at conferences and those kind of things. So that's kind of initially how the idea came about. And so, gotcha. yeah, we've, we've done that now for uh, 20, 2007 was our first Wow. Wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> legit (laughs) well that concludes another episode thank you so much for listening and remember historic preservation is a present conversation with our past about our future we don't inherit the earth from our parents but we borrow it from our children so let's make sure we're telling the inclusive history musical selections that you heard throughout the episode are from sarah gilberg's album other people secrets which is available on amazon just about everywhere music is sold I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? I'm I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so 
overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.